Good morning. Years ago, I worked with my dad in his cabinet business, and uh, we would put together uh, for shows that we had, uh, we had a Pacific National Exhibition, and there was shows that we had in different shopping, or supermarkets, not supermarkets, but uh, shopping malls. Um, we would want to display our cabinets, but instead of bringing, you know, three or four kitchens down there, we would um, put together what we called vignettes. I'd never heard that word before, and a vignette, I guess, is probably a French word, and as far as I know, it means small small kitchens, <laughs> but it doesn't really. It just means just a small sample, really, of um, just a small look at what your kitchen might look like. Well, today we're going to have some vignettes as well, but uh, there are still a lot of people in David's life and not enough time to, to, or not enough details really, to go into a great long story of their character, but they're interesting characters all the same, and there's some lessons that I think we can learn from them, and so we want to just uh, tidy up some of these uh, characters and and show how they relate to David and, and uh, some of the um, ways they affected David's life. So we are now in the last 20 years of David's life. David uh, sinned with Bathsheba when he was probably about 50 or 51 years of age, and uh, he lived until he was 70 years old. So I want to look now at the last 20 years of David's life and... Uh, See what took place there. As Noed described for us over the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> when David sinned with Bathsheba, uh, he also murdered her husband, Uriah. And it was nearly a year that went, uh, went by before he repented of his sin. But with the repentance came the refreshment of forgiveness of sins and the restoration of fellowship with the Lord. So if we were to take a look at the last 20 years of David's life, we could probably split it into roughly uh, 10 years and 10 years. So from 50 to 60, and then from 60 to 70. Most of our our, uh, time this morning, we'll look at the first part of that. From the time David was 50 until he was around 60, he went through a series of terrible trials in his life. Many of these trials were really the direct consequence of his sin with Bathsheba. He had sinned against the Lord, and as we read in the Scripture, the Lord said, By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Because of his sin, the Lord said to him, Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord? to do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall not shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. 
Now, David repented of his sins. He was forgiven for his sins. He clearly sought the Lord's forgiveness, if you read Psalm 51, and he received it. But the rod of correction was still applied to David over an, over a 10-year period. The Lord's mercy and grace are also seen in his life in that God did not remove the kingdom from David as he had with Saul. God also blessed David with a wise son through Bathsheba. And he tenderly cared for David through the rest of his life. Toward the end of David's life, he could write this, The Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Oftentimes, um, we as believers sin and we seek the forgiveness of God and we receive it. The most worn out verses in the Bible should be, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of you have quoted that verse, have appealed to that to the Lord using that verse? Okay, if you haven't, you ought to find it in the Bible, mark it, and, and paste it on your mirror every morning. Okay, It's a verse that we often use. The Lord is gracious. He forgives. He restores fellowship. But sometimes the Lord allows the consequences of our sins to take their effect in our life. Um, I remember saying this one time to a class of interns, uh, and one of the brothers in the class objected. He said, brother, that, that's just not true. I said, what's not true? He said, once forgiven, always forgiven. I said, I thought it was once saved, always saved. <laughs> I said, the forgiveness of God is very real. And that verse that I quoted you tells us that God does forgive and cleanse. No question about it. But God still uses the rod of discipline in our life. And it proves that we are his sons. If God did not love us, if God did not uh, desire for us to be right with him, he would not use his rod. But he does uh, to those who are believers. And so the scripture says this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And as I look at David's the end of David's life, the next 20 years, one of the things that I note about his character is that he does not despise the chastening of the Lord. I think a lot of times when we suffer, if you will, the chastening of the Lord, 
we despise it. We, we become bitter towards the Lord. But I don't see that in David's, the end of David's life here. I see instead a willingness to receive the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, because he sees that God means it for his good. He willingly submits to the hand of God's discipline. <clears throat> it is interesting to note in David's life that when he was chased by Saul and he was a fugitive, if you will, God had made a promise to him that he would be king and, and Saul uh, chased him for a decade, that David was very close. He walked very close to the Lord during that time of trial in his life. When he was at ease, he fell into sin. And then the Lord brought David back to himself. How did he do that? Through another 10 years of trial, another 10 years of being chased. And uh, that's what happened during the period between 50 and 60. And though this was a time of chastening, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness in David's life. As, I, as Noah had mentioned, I had uh, talked with him about um, the day the music stopped, the time in, in David's life when, when he sinned with Bathsheba. And there is no music. There are no psalms being written. But once again, we see the psalms being picked up, the pen and the, the instruments being picked up, and psalms are then written again in these latter years of David's life as he endures uh, trials. Okay, well, <clears throat> among David's children, he had a number of children, there were two sons who would be the natural next in line for the throne. The, the oldest, of course, would be the, the most natural one. But both of them were wicked men. God is sovereign, and God loves not only David, but he loves Israel. And God's desire for Israel was that she should um, see a, a king come in who was wise, who loved the Lord, and so on. And these two men did not qualify. And um, so God would prevent both of them from ascending the throne. Now remember that part of the punishment that God uh, prescribed for David was that he would have adversity from within his own household. David's eldest son, Amnon, was the crown prince. And the, his story unfolds for us in 2 Samuel 13. Now, we're not going to go into great detail. We have many, many chapters to cover this morning, so we're just going to touch on a few highlights here and there. But it starts in 2 Samuel 13. Now, I, want, I hope I don't lose you in the family tree here, but let me see if I can describe it this way to you. Amnon was David's oldest son. Amnon had a cousin. Um, so let's start over again. David had a brother. David had a brother who had a son. So if David's brother has a son and David has a son, those two boys are cousins. All right, so, so far we're tracking. So Amnon's cousin was also a wicked man. Amnon had a half-sister named Tamar. So David, go back to David again for a minute. David had multiple wives, okay? The reason that it's not good to have multiple wives is because it's hard enough to have one wife, <laughs> among other reasons. But David had multiple wives. And so the children of those wives would be 
half-brothers or half-sisters, right? Same father, different mother. So David had a wife who had a daughter. Her name was Tamar. He had the son, Amnon. Amnon and Tamar were half-brother, half-sister. Okay, everybody tracking with me? Amnon, this, this, this girl was beautiful. She was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And Amnon had a great desire to have her for himself. And his desire, it says in the scripture, love. But I'll tell you right now, it's not agape love. It's not a self-sacrificing love. It was lust. And it was the worst kind of lust. He couldn't sleep. He became sick from his, his lust for this girl. And uh, he wanted her so badly that he became physically sick. Well, the wicked cousin of Amnon devised a plan to get Amnon and Tamar alone. And so he concocted this scheme and, and Amnon followed it and they became alone and Amnon took her and he raped her over the protests of Tamar. And then after he was finished raping her, he basically threw her out of the room and said, just be gone. And it says in the scripture that his hatred for her was greater than the love that he had for her. So the professed love that he had for her, which, which, uh, which consumed him, the hatred was, was greater than that uh, at the end. And he threw her out of the room and locked the bolt of the door behind her. Uh, so Amnon had followed his cousin's advice and forcibly raped his half-sister. Wanted nothing more to do with her. David eventually heard about this event and it says in the scripture that he became angry. That's it. He became angry. It was the king's responsibility as both the king and the father of both of these children to correct his son to administer justice. But he does nothing. He does absolutely nothing. You know, it's easy to see sin in the life of teenagers, the life of uh, young people, as long as those young people belong to somebody else. You know what I mean? As parents, we so easily see, you know, that kid is a troublemaker. That kid is a problem. That kid over there is trouble with a capital T. And it's very easy to see it in other families' kids and not in our own. And David had that same problem here. Some people think that in this case, David may have felt silenced because of his own son, his own sin and as a result took no action against his own son. But David's inaction here nearly cost him the throne, and his inaction uh, will cost him the life of not one, but two of his sons. Is this tolerance? Is that the character trait we're seeing here? Tolerance? Or is it shame for his own sin? It does seem that David was somewhat indulgent with his own children. You know, I've heard parents say something like this in the past. Um, you know, when it comes to correcting their own children's behavior, they, uh, particularly when it, it, it uh, happens in certain sins 
uh, that they might have struggled with in their life as well. It might be a sexual sin. It might be pornography. It might be drinking. It might be drugs. Perhaps they gossip or swear or have outbursts of anger, and they say, well, I, I really can't deal with my children in this area because I've had the same problem myself. Have you heard that? I've heard people say that. Okay? I really can't deal with them because I have that problem. And some people say, well, the reason David didn't address the problem here is because he had sinned with Bathsheba. And now his son had committed a very similar crime and he just can't deal with it. Well, let me ask you a few questions. You don't have to raise your hand because I already know the answer. Who has never lied here? Okay. If your child lied, would you discipline them? You say, well, of course I would. Who has never been angry here? But if your child was angry, would you not discipline them? Who has never stolen anything? But if your child stole something, would you discipline them? You say, well, of course I would. Of course I would. So if you have committed a sexual sin, as David did, and your son or daughter committed the same, would you overlook it? Would you not discipline him or her? And if they are adults, would you just become angry and remain silent and do nothing about it? Or would you speak up and confront the sin? In this case, David chose the easy way out. He became angry and he remained silent. But it turns out that the easy way out really has the most serious consequences. And so it would have been better for David to have spoken up, to have done something about it, to have dealt with the sin. You say, well, how should David have dealt with it? He had sinned with Bathsheba. Well, perhaps he should have dealt with it the same way the Lord dealt with him. With mercy, with kindness, but with firmness as well. The Bible tells us how to confront sins in the lives of others. Parents, we must deal with sin in our own family. The Bible says this, and this is probably the most, not the most famous verse in the Bible, but the most well-known verse in the Bible among the unsaved. Judge not, lest you be judged. Right? And people stop right there. Judge not, lest you be judged. But let's look at the verse in context. Matthew 7, verse 1. Jesus says, Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If John has a sin in his life, and I say, John, it's a speck, let, let me do the delicate surgery. But there's a telephone pole protruding out of my eye, and I can't even get that close to John to see the speck that is in his eye. Then guess what? Take the telephone pole out first then I can do the delicate surgery in John's eye, right? And what Jesus is saying here is, look, 
if if you have a sin in your life in an exaggerated form deal with it david had that david had sinned against bathsheba but he dealt with it ultimately he confessed his sin he forsook his sin he was forgiven for his sin when david confessed his sin before the lord he asked forgiveness and said in psalm 51 restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit then he says i will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you the whole idea here is this that once the telephone pole is out of our eye once the sin has been dealt with in our own lives then we will see clearly in order to be able to help somebody else who has also sinned in like kind okay first comes brokenness and repentance forgiveness then the joy of salvation then walking in the spirit and then one can help remove the speck from his brother's eye or his child's eye the point of the passage is this that because we have a telephone pole in our eye does not mean that we should therefore shirk our responsibility in dealing with sins in other people address the issues in your own life first so that you can then help others who are all who have also fallen into sin you know when as parents when we see our sins duplicated in our children it should cause us great humility it really should we should say lord that's me lived out all over again and in galatians 1 it says this brethren if a man is overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted the memory of my own sin and god's forgiveness for that sin should be at the forefront of my mind as i minister to other people who have fallen into sin that's really what it's talking about here restore such an one in the spirit of gentleness don't forget you're a sinner too and that you are just as prone to falling as they are this is the beginning of strife in david's household so david's oldest son amnon who listened to his wicked cousin uh he raped david's daughter tamar filled with shame and sorrow tamar fled from the room and she did not seek help from her father instead she sought help and comfort from her full brother absalom and absalom kept her in seclusion for two years and the bible says that absalom never said anything good or anything evil against his half-brother amnon he just was silent just silent but deep inside of absalom's heart he wanted to take revenge he wanted vengeance uh, to be exacted against his brother amnon for the disgraceful treatment of his sister and for two full years absalom stewed on this injustice and the thoughts played over and over and over again in his head it's wrong to rape somebody it's a sin that must be punished and 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 you could just see him fueling the fire of vengeance and revenge uh, in his heart how can i let this wicked rapist live on the earth how can someone like that be the next king because he's the next in line for the throne 
No one is going to rape my sister and get away with it. And for two years, he stewed on it. And for two years, he looked for an opportunity to take vengeance. It really wasn't his to take. But he wanted to settle the score. It was a sultry spring night. It was the time of sheep shearing in Israel. And Absalom decided to throw a sheep shearing party. You know, you've been to one, right? <laughs> it was a time in Israel of great celebration. A time when the sheep would be shorn and the wool would be taken and would be sold. It was a, a, a great time of, of almost like bringing in the harvest. And uh, if you study sheep shearing in the scripture, you'll find that it's a time of uh, feasting. It's a time of drunkenness. It's a time of settling the score. It's a time of um, debts being paid, wrongs being made right. During this season, Jacob broke away from his uncle Laban. Judah sinned with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. David, remember, wanted to settle accounts with uh, that fool, Nabal. And now Absalom wanted to host a sheep-shearing party. He wanted to settle the score. Was it an innocent social event? (laughs) Far from it. There was a score that Absalom wanted to settle. So he invited all of the king's sons, all of his half-brothers to join him. And he even invited the king, King David. When you read the passage in the scripture, it's a little bit strange if you don't know the background of sheep shearing and and what's going on and this whole settling of the score issue. He asks them to come to the sheep shearing party and David refuses. And you say, why is he doing that? And David gives some kind of a lame excuse. I mean, almost like, no, 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 we don't want to be a burden to you. We don't want to be a... It almost sounds like we don't want to be a financial burden to you. This is the king's son. He wasn't having financial troubles. And you say, why would David make an excuse like that? But I think David knew his son well enough. And he saw... He, David had been part of sheep shearing before. He knew what went on during these times. At first blush, it seems like... It just seems odd. But David um, didn't go. And so Absalom, I wonder, and it's speculation, there's no way to prove this, but I wonder, was Absalom simply hiding his intention to kill Amnon by inviting the whole clan? Or was it more sinister than that? Could it be that Absalom really had the intention, even at this time, of not just killing Absalom, but taking out David as well. So, oh, that would never happen. Did you forget the rest of the story of Absalom? It's exactly what Absalom tries to do. Was it this early in his thinking? Could have been. Absalom had a view that it was his responsibility to settle the score, and it wasn't. But Absalom had stewed on this for two years. And during the process of those thoughts, I have no doubt, he also would think, why didn't my father do something? 
Why didn't the king say something? Why didn't the king act properly here? He's not the right king to be in place. If anybody should be king, it's me because I'm righteous. I want righteousness to be uh, served. I want it to be dealt, dealt with here properly. Well, we don't know really what was in his heart at that point, but we certainly know that it became a motivating factor as time went on uh, in his life. King David declined the invitation. Absalom was crafty. Well, I'll take out my father later. For now, he would content himself with killing his brother. So all the, son, the king's sons came, including Amnon, and Absalom acted the part of a good host and fed them, gave them wine to drink and caused them all to be drunk. And as they feasted and they drank until they were drunk. In Second Samuel thirteen twenty-eight, it says this, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And Absalom murdered Amnon. Soon the news reached David, and he wept very bitterly with all of his um, family and people there. Absalom fled the country and traveled to Geshur in Syria. Well, who lived in Geshur? His maternal grandfather. So his mother's father lived there. Uh, his name was Talmai. David had married Talmai's daughter, and Absalom was David's son through that union. Talmai was um, king, or at least, if not king, he was the king. I think at the time that David married the daughter, he was the king's son, and then he became the king of this territory in Syria. For three years. Tell me, tell me I um, kept Absalom there. He agreed or sided with Absalom. Doing the right thing, being righteous, following the word of God does not even seem to enter his mind here at all. Here is a murderer who has come for refuge and he takes him in and he welcomes him as his own. He's a grandfather stepping in to protect his grandson. He may declare his love for Absalom, but it is not love to protect a family member who has committed a crime like this. Grandparents and parents. Be careful that you do not allow the love for your own family members to blind you from doing what is righteous, from doing what is the righteous thing. For three years, Absalom was protected, and David mourned for Amnon every day. So after the passing of time, David was comforted concerning Amnon, and he began to long to see Absalom again. Now, during this time away... <clears throat> Uh, with his grandfather, Absalom was plotting the overthrow of David's kingdom. And he had a lot of time on his hand to think about how he would go about doing this. And the thing is that he's in exile, really. I mean, he's, he's um, an outcast. 
he doesn't have access to the inner circle, and he's, he doesn't have a military uh, he doesn't have military strength, and so how is he going to come from um, this little town in, in Syria and take over, usurp the the uh, throne? How is he going to do that? Well, he's been thinking about it for quite some time. Absalom, by the way, this is like our prison system, had not been rehabilitated. Okay, he became more hardened in his sin. Ultimately, Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, but David still refuses to see him. And he lives there for two more years without seeing his father face to face. David, when he's about 59 years old, he finally lets his son appear before him. He had not seen him at this point for about five years. Absalom was now back with access to the inner circle of David's um, advisors, David's military men. He, was, he now was in the place where he longed to be. Now he could take action. And so he set his plan in motion. He made it his practice over the next uh, period of time to intercept people that were coming to David for advice. And uh, he would say, what's your case before the king? And they say, well, I feel ripped off because such and such happened in my life. And, and Absalom would say, well, you know what? I think you've got a very good case there. It sounds like you're right. And the other party is wrong. And in doing this day after day after day, everybody who came was right. What kind of a judge is that? Everything that people would bring to me for him say, you're right. And if I were king, I would find in favor of you. And of course, what did he do? By what, what happened as a result of doing that? He garnered the hearts of the people to himself. And the Bible says that very clearly. So, he won the hearts of the men of Israel. And then there came a point in, in his life where he came to the king and he said, Hey, Dad, I'll tell you what, I've got to um, go up to Hebron. Because when I was away from you, I made a vow to the Lord that I would serve him. Now I want to go and pay my vows to the Lord. Boy, that sounds religious. Doesn't that sound spiritual? I'm going to pay my vows to the Lord, just like I promised him. And David said, go with my blessing. David didn't see what was coming. And Absalom went out to Hebron, and he says, when you hear the trumpets blow, then you will know that I am king. He proclaimed himself to be king. Under the pretext of being spiritual, he went out as a traitor. So once he declared himself to be king, one of the very first things he did under his new kingship is he called for David's chief advisor. The man's name is Ahithophel, David's chief advisor. You know, you read the passage at, at first glance and you say, here is a man that the scripture says spoke as the oracles of God. Okay? Here is a man that David trusted for years as his chief advisor. Here is a man that David trusted his very life with and the future and the direction of his kingdom. And it seems like just a 
on a whim as you read the scripture. It seems like just a whim that, that uh, Absalom says, hey, Ahithophel, come with me. And Ahithophel knows what Absalom is up to. And he forsakes David and he goes to be with Absalom. And you say, why? What is he doing? Why could Absalom simply call for Ahithophel and why would Ahithophel forsake David? What would lead David's chief advisor to join a conspiracy against David? Well, let's take a look. 2 Samuel 16, 23 is um, the kind of man he was to David. It says, Now the advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and then, of course, ultimately with uh, Absalom. Well, it turns out that Ahithophel had a grievance against David. He had held a grudge against David for nearly 10 years. And when he saw Absalom turning the hearts of the people against David, he held his peace and he did not inform David what was going on. And he became one of the co-conspirators. So he knew that Absalom was about to try to overthrow the kingdom and he was party to it. And so when Absalom called for him, he was ready and willing to throw in his lot with the rebellion. Ahithophel had been David's chief counselor, so he was well aware of the facts of David's sin with Bathsheba. And he knew of David's command to kill Uriah the Hittite. But why would, David, why would Ahithophel take up this grievance against David? It turns out that Ahithophel had a son. And his son's name was Eliam. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Eliam, as you study the, the later portion of uh, Samuel... You'll, there's a list of David's mighty men. Charlie's going to look at that in uh, next week. And in the list of David's mighty men, there are a number of men written, uh, written about, and they're classified by their greatness and the great things that they did. And Eliam is listed among David's mighty men. Eliam was one of David's mighty men, a prized warrior among David's men. But remember, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, he was also one of David's mighty men whom David had killed. And so Eliam had lost one of his military buddies because of David's action. That offended Ahithophel because Ahithophel knew what had happened. That was a great offense that David would be so callous about his mighty men that he would have him killed. Ah, but there's more. The relationship between Ahithophel and Eliam was actually much stronger. For you see, Uriah was Eliam's son-in-law because he was married to Bathsheba. So what we have is Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba, who had a son, Eliam, who had a son-in-law, Uriah. Not just a military buddy, but it was his son-in-law. And so as Ahithophel saw what was going on, David had sinned against his own granddaughter. And he had had his son-in-law, if you will, kill, or his grandson-in-law through such a thing, 
uh, killed. In 2 Samuel, it says this. So David sent, this is at the time he was going to sin, and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So that means that David's chief advisor, Ahithophel, is Bathsheba's grandfather. And Ahithophel never forgave David, but nursed his hurt and his grievance in his heart for nearly a decade. He felt betrayed by the king. And it blinded him, he felt betrayed, but it blinded him to his own treason and betrayal of David when he followed Absalom's rebellion. So David learned of the rebellion, knew that he would be trapped if he stayed in in, uh, Jerusalem, and he hurriedly fled to the wilderness that he knew so well from the years when he was being chased by Saul. In 2 Samuel 15, 30, it says this, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Ahithophel's, Ahithophel, David's chief advisor, now gives his first counsel to Absalom. And he tells Absalom, here is what I want you to do. And this will make you odious, if you will, in the, in the sight of the king. And it will give you favor in the sight of the people. Take ten of David's concubines, his lesser wives, and rape them in full view of the son. And that's exactly what he does. And so this man, uh, Absalom, who wanted to murder his half-brother because of the rape of his sister, did something that was ten times worse than what Amnon had done to his sister. And he saw no problem with that. The sins that we see in others are often hideous, I think Bill McDonald used to say. But they're the same sins in us, but usually to a much greater degree. And that was true here of Amnon. And so this was Ahithophel's counsel, I think, really was revenge against David for defiling his granddaughter, Bathsheba. And Absalom's action was ten times worse than Amnon's rape of his sister. Well, for the sake of time, we will not go further into Absalom's life, but he really, as you study the life of Absalom, there is no appreciable character trait that I would recommend you follow. Not one. The study of Absalom's life is a study in what you should not do or a study in what you should not be. The father who loves his son disciplines his son, and this is what the Lord promised he would do in David's life as a consequence of his sin. David's sins were forgiven as soon as he confessed them and as soon as he forsook them. But the consequences of his actions led to nearly a decade of trouble and strife. But God is not simply punishing David. God is merciful and he's kind and he's gracious. And so we see in David many of the lessons that he learned as a result of this period of time in his life. And we'll just end with that today. First, David never sinned like that again. Isn't that the whole point of repentance? 
that you turn from your sin, you turn to God, and he never sinned like that again. He had learned his lesson. Second, the Lord, as, as Noah had pointed out last week, the Lord gave David a wise son to sit on his throne. And that wise son came through the proper relationship now with uh, Bathsheba. The Lord allowed David to go through this decade of trials. And the scripture says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You know, the songs began to be written again. David took up the pen and wrote many more songs. The music began to play. And we have that uh, eternally for us in the Scripture. You know, there's an interesting thing that takes place in a person's life. And this is true of David's life. David seemed to really shine the brightest in his character and in his appreciation for the Lord when he was suffering trials. Really. When he was suffering. Paul had a um, trial in his life. And he says that he prayed to the Lord three times for the Lord to remove the thorn in his flesh. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think at times in life, we probably more often than not say, Lord, deliver me from this trial. Deliver me from what oppresses me. Deliver me from this burden or whatever it happens to be. And really, it's often the best thing for us is to be in that period of time, period of trial, to learn that God's grace is sufficient for everything in life, every need. David learned loyalty at this time as well from true friends. Remember the 400 men that uh, (laughs) came after David when um, he originally fled from Saul? It says of them, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, Everyone who was discontented gathered to him. There were about 400 of these guys. Remember those guys? He became captain over them, and it says there were about 400 men. That number grew to be about 600 men as time went on. And most of those men were still with him as loyal friends, even at this time of his life when he's in exile uh, because of his son Absalom. In 2 Samuel, um, well, loyal friends. One of the most loyal friends was a man named Hushai, who David sent back to um, Jerusalem and said, Hushai, go and disrupt the council of Ahithophel. Basically, overturn it. And Hushai went back really at the risk of his own life. And he listened to the council of Ahithophel, And he said, well, that's pretty good as far as it goes. Actually, Ahithophel's counsel was fabulous. If if Absalom had followed Ahithophel's counsel, Ahithophel said to to, uh, Absalom, while David is fleeing, he's not ready, he's not prepared, go out and get him now. Had he done that, he probably would have killed David. And and, uh, if you read read the account, it's really interesting the word pictures that Hushai paints for 
Absalom. He says, well, you know, it's pretty good counsel as far as it goes. And, you know, it was good to listen to all of that. But my thinking is this, and he paints this picture of the entire nation rising up against David and, and uh, falling on him like the dew falls on the grass each morning and, and, and totally obliterating him. Well, that's just fit with Absalom's heart. Just, let's just obliterate my father and all of his men. And so as Ahithophel listened, Ahithophel was a wise counselor. He knew how to give good counsel. And as he listened to that and saw Absalom turn his heart to follow uh, Hushai's counsel, he saw that his days were numbered. And so he went back to his home and he put his things in order and he hanged himself. He committed suicide because he knew that this spelled the defeat of Absalom. We see in all of the intrigue, this is better than any Hollywood movie, let me tell you. If you were to put all this together, you say, man, there's so many plots and twists and turns in all of this. You know, but it's true. It really happened. And it, it's so interesting to see that during all of this time, God is working behind the scenes and causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. David, during this time, I think more than any time in his life, learned the lessons of contentment in trusting the Lord. Though God's rod may hurt, yet his tender mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. David also learned during this time to commit his ways to the Lord who judges righteously. That's a lesson that's very difficult for us as humans to learn. Don't you think? When something goes wrong in our life or somebody does something wrong to us, the natural tendency of our life is to rise up and defend ourselves and to put down the other person in, in some way, either legally or, or any other way. David, during this period of time in his life, learned this lesson of trusting in the Lord, trusting himself to him who judges righteously. It's a lesson that I'm still learning. It's a lesson for all of us uh, to learn as well. When he was cursed by Shimei and David's men wanted to go and take off his head, David entrusted himself to the Lord. And he said, you know, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. David fled Jerusalem with nothing at all, not even the shoes on his feet. It says that they, they uh, traveled barefoot. Yet the Lord provided for him during this period of time uh, and all who were loyal to him. In 2 Samuel 16, and we're going to just end with um, a couple of verses here. It says, When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisin, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? And so Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then in uh, chapter 17, verse 27, it says, Now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah the son of Ammon, Maker the son of Amiel and from Lodibar and Bar, uh, Barzillai the Gilead from uh, Rogalim brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty 
in the wilderness. And then verse chapter 19, verse 32. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. And he provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Maenam, for he was a very rich man. And so I look at this event at the end of this period of David's life, and I see that even as David is without any uh, support or without any provisions, God provides for him in the wilderness. He provides for him everything that he needs. God can be trusted, even through these difficult trials of life. In the last 10 years of David's life, it seems to be a time of peace and prosperity. And if you take the time to read it this afternoon, there's a beautiful summary or accounting, if you will, of all that happened in the last 10 years of David's life as he prepared the uh, goods or the, the, the uh, gold, the silver, the wood, and all that for the temple. And it's a beautiful, striking picture to me of David foreseeing that he is coming to the end of his life, coming to the time when uh, he will die. And the Lord told him he can't build the tabernacle or the, the, the temple, but that his son would do so in his place. And he makes all of the provision that he can uh, during this period of time for Solomon to, to go forward and do that. Tremendous attention to, to detail on accumulating as much wealth as possible for the temple. And then there's just a little, almost a side note in there that says that in addition to all that he accumulated, David gave out of the abundance of his own wealth as well and put money to the work of the Lord. Well, we come to the end of David's life. Charlie, as I mentioned, will bring for us uh, attention of the the men in David's life, the the mighty men that uh, surrounded him during his days on earth. And then after that, we're going to move into the, the life of Solomon. So I know we've spent a lot of time with David, and I hope we've come to appreciate some of, uh, of his character and, and the, the qualities of his life and the, the victories that he had and the defeats as well. But through it all, how the Lord upheld him and, uh, and uh, caused him to grow as a, a man after God's own heart. Let's just pray. Lord, as we come before you, we, we thank you for the life of David and the many, many lessons that uh, we have learned and are still to learn uh, from him. And we just pray, Lord, that we might also be known as men and women whose hearts are after God's own heart. We just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.